Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. All right, let's do this. Let's go ahead and jump into this new series that we're calling Garden State. And I want to start like this. Every single thing that we do in life, literally everything we do, so every relationship that we pursue, regardless of the nature of the relationship, every degree that we would go to school in order to earn, every job that we work, every hobby we adopt, every decision that we make, everything we do in life is driven by these deep longings for things like significance, things like security and purpose, understanding, belonging, and love. Beneath everything we do, if you were to really dig down and like, what is it that's driving everything I do in life? Beneath everything we do, you're going to find these longings. And that is not by chance. We learn from the very opening pages of scripture that God infused our souls with these longings. And his intent for them is that they would draw us into deeper relationship with him. See, he's wired us in such a way that these longings can only truly be satiated and satisfied by him and by him alone. And so I want you to, if you're familiar with the Genesis story, I want you to just think back with me for a second to the Genesis story in the very beginning of the Bible. God made a deliberate decision, we see in Genesis chapter 1, to create humanity in his own image. And as the story goes, when we get to Genesis 2, we see God forming this first man out of the dust of the ground and breathing the breath of life into his nostrils. And God gave this man a meaningful mission. He put him in this beautiful garden that he had created for him to enjoy, and he gave him the mission to work that garden and to watch over it. Now, God also knew that no human being was going to flourish alone. And so God created the first woman, Eve, and God demonstrated his immense love for both of them by providing them with food and safety in that garden. And God wanted them to understand him, and he wanted them to know that he understood them. And so he would come and he would walk with them in this garden so that they could share their lives together, share their hearts together, so that they would know that they belonged to him and that they belonged with him. And so Genesis chapter 2 ends beautifully. We end Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve in the garden experiencing every single one of those longings satisfied by God himself exactly the way that God intended But again, if you are familiar with the Genesis story, then you know that by the end of Genesis 3, everything that every good thing that God created was in fact broken. And what broke creation in general, and humanity in particular, was a decision that Adam and Eve made, and one that we continue to replicate every single day up to this very day that we find ourselves in right now. They made the decision 
to seek the satisfaction of these core inner longings through means apart from God. And so rather than allow God to meet these needs, we do the same thing today. We look to other things. We look to our own performance. We look to some experience of of power or control. We look to the approval of other people, the endless uh, acquisition of stuff. And and all of that is, is driven by trying to keep these longings at bay. But at best, these things simply quiet the longings inside of us temporarily. And so as we start this journey together, trying to really learn what it looks like to allow God, to invite God, to satisfy these longings inside of us, I want to just point out two problems that I see in all of this. And the first problem is this. We are often in the dark and unaware of the longings that drive us. And that's a major problem. There uh, is a Swiss or was a Swiss psychiatrist who was a contemporary of Freud. His name was Carl Jung. And he said this, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will drive our lives and we will call it fate. Think about that for a second. Until we make the unconscious conscious, meaning we become aware Until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our lives and we will call it fate. Meaning that we are unaware of these deeper things inside of us that are actually driving all of life for us. Remember, everything we do in life is driven by deep core longings God himself infused into our souls. And if we are unaware of these longings that we possess, then we will more blindly allow them to drive our lives, oftentimes in very unhealthy ways. So the first problem is that we're often in the dark and unaware of the longings that drive us, which means the first goal of this series is to help increase our awareness, that we would know what is it inside of me that drives me forward. But there's a second problem, and that second problem is that we are, because of the first, we are unaccustomed, or we we are accustomed to seeking the satisfaction of our longings through means other than God. We look to things apart from God to satisfy what we yearn for internally. And this is what the Bible refers to as idols of the heart in Ezekiel chapter 14. An idol of the heart is anything, even even something that in and of itself is good, that we exploit in hopes of satisfying these longings inside of us. The reformer John Calvin, in his huge book, The Institutes, wrote, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And his point was that we are unmatched as humans in our ability to put anything on the throne of our hearts that we believe will meet these longings. So if goal number one for the series is to increase our awareness of what drives us, the second one is to align our pursuit of this satisfaction with God's intent for us, which is that we would find it in him. So here's the question that we want to wrestle with for the next few weeks. How do we move toward the garden state? How do we move toward that garden state where God was and God is the great satisfier of our longings? How do we allow these longings to drive us to God, to draw us to God rather than to drive us to endless performance and endless people pleasing that just exhausts us and keeps us like baseline miserable all the time. And so to that end, I want to start with the first 
of these six core longings that we all have. And I want to talk about longing for significance. Longing for significance. There's a Christian counselor and an ordained minister by the name of Dr. Robert Shaw, and he's written a series of six books, one on each of these core longings. And in his book, Created for Significance, he defines significance like this. It is the importance or the meaning of something. Significance is the importance or the meaning of something. So when I think about what's significant to me at the top of the list, is always like my wife and my kids, some close relationships in my life, and my guess would be the same thing is true for you. They are important to me. They hold tremendous meaning for me. And so if something is significant, it is important and meaningful. And inside each of us is this deep longing to be significant. We need to know that we are important, and that we are meaningful. So when we think about significance, it's impossible to separate it from our identity. We derive significance from who we are. That's identity, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, again, that is exactly how God designed us. Our significance is necessarily bound up in our identity. So the problem is not that we find significance in our identity. The problem is we have allowed our true identity to be stolen. That's the problem. So I want you to raise your hand if you've ever been the victim to some degree of identity theft. How many of you have experienced that in some way? It's, Tyler's hand is up so high because his identity has been stolen. I just think he's giving it away at this point. <laughs> just telling randos, here's a credit card, have a nice day. So, so there's a spectrum uh, in which you can experience this, all the way from like your full identity or like your social security number, and it can be so bad, you know, it can take months to get that rectified, it's horrible. But then on the other end, there's like maybe someone has stolen your credit card before. For me, that's, that's been the worst that I've experienced. I had a housekeeper in a hotel in downtown Chicago that stole my credit card. And, uh, and thankfully, like, they, didn't, they didn't go nuts. There's just some light shopping at Walgreens and Walmart which I should be thankful for, but I, if I, as I was thinking about it this week, I was a little insulted because it's kind of like the housekeeper walked in there like, this guy's, got a, this guy's clearly broke. So <laughs> this card's not gonna work at Gucci. He's got way more like a Walgreens and Walmart vibe, which they were not wrong about, but I'm just saying like, if you're gonna rob me, go big or go home, okay? So it didn't feel great to me that that's all that happened. But here's why I bring this up. Many of us, have allowed our God-given identity to be stolen from us. And we've allowed that true identity to be replaced by the wounds, the words, and the experiences of the past. And together, those three things, those wounds, the words that have been spoken over us, the experiences that we have had that have been difficult, even traumatic to experience, together those things have formed this false identity from which we do three things. We believe, we feel, and we behave. And so the solution is to embrace again our true God-given identity. And if you are not sure what that is, let me just tell you, you are forgiven you are loved, you are embraced, 
You are enjoyed, you are empowered, you are redeemed, and you are an adopted child of God. That is the truest thing about you. That is who you are. And you don't have to take my word for it. Listen to the words of scripture. In John chapter one, verse 12, we are told this, but to all who did receive Jesus, he gave the right to be what? Children of God. Furthermore, Romans 8, 15 to 16, Paul writes, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. That's who you are. And so here's our big idea this morning. We experience significance. We experience significance when we embrace our identity as children of God. That's how God designed us and created us to have this longing in us satisfied that we would know as his children, we are significant to him. That should matter to us more than anyone else's opinion about us. We experience significance when we embrace our identity as children of God. And so here's another, I think, massive challenge with this subject of significance. More and more, we live in a culture that is marked by polarized extremes. Would you agree with that? It's certainly true politically and socially, but it's also true of theological tribalism. It's also true of the way that we are inclined to view ourselves. So on one end of this extreme, some appear guilty of what we might label as like narcissistic self-love. Okay, so we get kind of hung up when we think about significance because some of us think of that, this like narcissistic self-love. Do you know where the word narcissist came from? It actually comes from Greek mythology. There was a hunter by the name of Narcissus who was known for his beauty. And the story goes that one day Narcissus saw his own reflection in the water, fell in love with himself, fell into that water, and drowned. So it's kind of a cautionary tale. <laughs> and so the next time you see someone have about 17 attempts at a duck face selfie, just know, you should, you should read about Narcissus. This is not good for you, okay? So that's where we get the word narcissist from. <clears throat> but here's the thing. In an attempt to avoid that narcissistic self-love, some have demonized self-worth altogether, as if any concern for self-worth is in fact narcissism, and that's not true. Because if God sees us as significant, if God assigned us worth, surely we're supposed to see ourselves that way, correct? So that extreme is a problem. But on the other extreme, many people live with what can only be described as an intense self-hatred. And on that end of the spectrum, there once lived a man named Art. And Art was a gifted athlete. He had amazing success in both baseball and football that landed him in the NCAA Hall of Fame before being recruited to play professionally in both of those sports. And then Art went on to become an influential coach. He was a husband. He was the father to six children. And despite all of that, Art was haunted by self-hatred. He just could not love himself the way that God loved him. And because of that, he couldn't fully receive God's love. And he couldn't fully receive the love of those that were around him. 
And so finally, after a lifetime of struggle, Art took his own life. And Art was my grandfather. And one of the great sadnesses of my life has been growing up in the world without him. Now here's what I find curious. Both of these extremes, the extreme of narcissistic self-love on the one hand and self-hatred on the other, they make loving God impossible. Both extremes make loving other people impossible. Both extremes make living with a healthy sense of self-worth completely impossible. The only way that we truly experience significance is not by being in love with ourselves, but it is also not by hating ourselves. We experience the significant significance that we long for by mentally, emotionally, and behaviorally embracing our identity as children of God. The million-dollar question is how on earth do we do that? And so to that end, I want to point our attention to a beautiful story in the Old Testament. And in this story, we see two men's stories intersect in a powerful and a healing way. <clears throat> and so do me a favor. If you have a Bible or an app that you read on, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is the story of King David showing healing kindness to a man named Mephibosheth, which a lot of people are naming their kids these days. <laughs> Mephibosheth, for reasons that were, does anybody know Mephibosheth? That would be amazing. I feel like if anywhere there is a Mephibosheth, it's in Utah. So <laughs> you go south of Salt Lake County, there is for sure a handful of Mephibosheths running around, okay? <laughs> we cut that from the podcast. That probably shouldn't go out. Now, Mephibosheth, for reasons that we're going to see in just a second, he lived with very little sense, felt sense of self-worth. And, uh, and we're going to get to why that is in just a second and to see how that changed. But just for the sake of context, it's important to understand that in King David's life at this point, because he had a very complicated life, he has finally secured his promised position as king of Israel at this point. And so Saul, Israel's first king, had been killed by the Philistines along with his son, Jonathan. And Jonathan, if you don't know, had been David's best friend. If you want to look at the most pointed and beautiful picture of friendship in the Bible, look at David and Jonathan. They had an incredible friendship. And back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David had promised that no matter what their stories held, that David would always treat Jonathan's family with kindness. And in 2 Samuel 9, we learned that David held true to that commitment. And so look with me, if you would, at 2 Samuel chapter 9, we'll start in verse 1. It starts like this. David asked, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. And the king asked him, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Machir, son of Emil. So King David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. 
since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? All right, let's pause here for just a second because these give us, these verses give us so much insight into why Mephibosheth would have struggled to feel significant. Just consider for a second all the trauma that this young man had experienced to this point. Think about it. He had gone from being a son to being an orphan in a moment. If you go back to 1 Samuel 31, you would read of Saul and Jonathan, Mephibosheth's grandfather and father being killed in battle by the Philistines. And so in a matter of moments, Mephibosheth loses all the security and all the comfort of having a family. He is alone in the world. Secondly, he had gone from being whole to being disabled. You know, Mephibosheth was only five years old when Saul and Jonathan were killed. And when word of their death got back to him, 2 Samuel 4.4 says that his nanny picked him up and fled. But as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. Now in Hebrew, the phrase he fell carries the notion that she dropped him. So in her haste to run away, because she was worried the Philistines are coming, they're for sure going to wipe out this boy, she's running away, and she dropped him in some way that his feet somehow permanently were permanently damaged in the fall, and he could never walk typically again. And then thirdly, he had gone from being a prince to being a servant. With the death of Saul and Jonathan, there was nothing left. So Mephibosheth spent the rest of his life to this point living as a servant off the hospitality of this man named Makir. And so I want you to just imagine how just these three, I mean, he was a human and lived a life. So guaranteed he had all kinds of hard days and hard circumstances in between these three big things. But just think about the way that these three things would distort one's self-image. Just the disability alone would have caused him to be despised in his culture. And I don't think there's anywhere that his own self-worth is more clearly displayed than in his response to David's kindness. Because notice again, he says, what is your servant that you would take an interest in a dead dog like me? There's never been a time in human history in which referring to oneself as a dead dog was positive self-talk. That's what this guy feels about his own worth. That one question that he gives back to David in response, holds the wounds of a lifetime. A lifetime of loss, a lifetime of ridicule, and a lifetime of pain. But thankfully, we're going to see some of that healed in just a moment. Look at verse 9. Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, your servants are to work the ground for him and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, your servants will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. 
However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. So think about, notice this incredible reversal that takes place in the midst of really just one conversation. Think about how healing this would have been for Mephibosheth's sense of self-worth. David is a conduit for God's kindness to Mephibosheth. And David knows this because if you look back, he had specifically said, is there anyone in Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? He wanted this person, in, in this case, Mephibosheth, to experience God's love for him in a tangible and meaningful way. And so notice how this happens. First, his wounds are embraced, which would have been maybe the first time in his life that he had experienced this. Notice that David does not ridicule or reject him due to his disability. In fact, David doesn't even address it. And that alone is massive because in this culture, this would have been the primary mark on Mephibosheth's life. He was Mephibosheth the cripple, guaranteed. That's the way he was known to everyone. And his feet are mentioned twice in this story. But David reflects the heart of God to him rather than the heart of his culture. And he embraced Mephibosheth's wounds. Secondly, Mephibosheth's position is restored. David gives him back all the land that had belonged to Saul. And Ziba is given to him to steward all of it. And this would have meant significant financial change in his life. He was no longer going to be a servant. Now he's a landowner. Now he has someone that is farming on his behalf. And his life changed in a moment. And then lastly, his identity is replaced. Mephibosheth would go on to live in Jerusalem and not just live in Jerusalem, but to live in Jerusalem as a part of David's family. He was a prince again. He and his own family would eat at David's table, which was a a symbol of acceptance. He also was put at the table with the most influential people in all of Israel, which would have changed his life as well. No longer would he be Mephibosheth the orphan. He would once again live the entirety of his life as a son. He belonged to David now. Now, here's why I think that it's so critical, or here's what I think is so critical for us to embrace and to understand and acknowledge in this story. Mephibosheth had to embrace David's invitation. That was key. Imagine what would have happened had he chosen to allow his own self-loathing his own wounds, to drive him in his decision-making. He would have rejected David's invitation, and none of this would have been true for him. He would have remained an orphan rather than a son. He would have continued to be defined by this disability rather than by David's kindness and love for him. He would have lived out his days as a servant rather than a prince. And all of this hinged on his willingness to embrace David's invitation. Come and live the rest of your life as my son. That was the invitation. And the truth is, the only way that we experience healing in our own lives and that we have this longing for significance satisfied is when we embrace God's invitation to us. Because God invites every one of us to his table where we are accepted, where we are loved, and where we are embraced. 
He invites us to be defined by his love rather than by our wounds. He invites us to assume our position as his image bearers and kingdom builders in this world. He invites us to be sons and daughters. The question is, how do we begin the long, slow healing of our significance in the wake of a lifetime of wounds? Because it's not as easy as just going, oh, I'm a child of God, I'm good now. That'd be awesome. But the truth is we really, really struggle to believe that and the world functions in such a way that it does not reinforce our identity as children of God. And so how do we really begin to move toward this long, slow healing of our significance? And so to that end, I wanna end today with a little bit of practical advice to help with this, hopefully, okay? So here's the first thing. Number one is to sit daily in God's delight for you. I really want you to hear this. Sit daily in God's delight for you. Do you know that God delights in you? See, I think that many of us believe that at best, God tolerates us. And based on the experiences of our past and what our relationships have been growing up, some of us might really struggle to believe that God likes us at all. So at best, he tolerates us. The problem is the Bible. Because the Bible tells us something very different. In fact, in Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 62 verse 4, God is speaking over then his people Israel. And what he speaks over Israel as they prepare to return from exile holds true this side of the cross for those of us who love and follow Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, you will no longer be called deserted which should be meaningful to those of us that have been abandoned by someone important in our life. You will no longer be called deserted and your land will not be called desolate. Instead, you will be called, listen to this, my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you. So what would it look like for you to, on a daily basis, spend some part of whatever your regular practice of sitting with God, being mindful and intentional about sitting in his delight for you. Think about how someone responds to someone that they delight in. Think about somebody in your life that delights you. I know that's not language that we use all of the time. You're probably not walking, you delight me. You're like, "Mm, that's creepy. Let's find another way to word that, okay? But it's a Bible word, and so we need to hold on to it. I think one of the reasons the language makes us uncomfortable is because it's really hard for us to believe that we could be delightful to God. So as you sit with your eyes closed and you imagine, because you are, being in the presence of God, sitting with him, what is his face toward you? What is his disposition toward you? What is his heart toward you? Because many of us struggle to feel anything from God other than disappointment. And I'm here to tell you that if you're in Christ, God's not disappointed with you. You are his son or his daughter. You are his beloved. And he delights in you. And the more faithful and frequent we are to really sit in and to experience his delight, the more we will begin to believe it. So number one, I would encourage you, 
Experiment with sitting daily in God's delight for you. Maybe adopting a breath prayer of Abba, you delight in me. And over and over and over, slowly with time, that really begins to sink into our souls and so we believe it. So sit daily in God's delight for you. Secondly, discern where your identity lies. And by that I mean, where are you prone apart from God, apart from seeking the satisfaction of significance in him, where are you prone to find your identity? For many of us, especially in the US, it's in our job, our vocation, or some role that you hold, or we find it in the eyes of another person, which is terribly dangerous. Because when we're sideways with them, our whole identity is disrupted by that, which is why some of us have such deep people-pleasing tendencies. It's because our identity is in what everyone else thinks about us, not in what God thinks about us. And so take some time to really reflect on where, where am I prone to find my identity? Because again, one of the goals of this series is awareness so that we can begin to align our hearts with God's. And we can't do that if we're unaware of where we're prone to find our identity. So discern where your identity lies. Thirdly, pay attention to your self-talk. I just want you to notice it for like a week, okay? Pay attention to your self-talk. That's one of the things that we see with Mephibosheth, right? His self-talk sucked. He's like, I'm a dead dog. That's the way he saw himself, of no value. And so here's the thing to pay attention to. Let's say that this week, it's gonna happen for sure because it happens to all of us. Let's say you mess something up, okay? So maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, maybe it's in a relationship. You do something and you just like, ah, you blew it. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. If internally, or maybe even verbally, you say like, God, I'm so stupid. That's an interesting comment because that's an identity comment. That's totally different than making a mistake, messing something up and going, ah, that was such a foolish decision. Or that was a, even if you were to say like, God, that was so stupid that I did that. See, that's a behavioral statement. You see the difference? Like, it's, it's very formative in our lives when we say, man, I am so stupid. I am so fearful. I am so, those are all identity. I am, and then you fill in the blank. That's an identity statement. But I messed up. I made a mistake. That's just behavioral. Everybody makes mistakes. And so I just want you to notice and to pay attention to your self-talk so that you can begin, as scripture says, to take every thought captive. Because for you, to ever think, I am so stupid. That's not true. It's just not true. Because that's not who God says you are. If you say, I'm a failure, not true. That's not who God says you are. Those are all identity statements. So note and pay attention to when you're making statements about your identity. Fourthly, pursue affirming relationships or healthy relationships, or whatever word makes the most sense and resonates with you. We need to be very careful about people who consistently have a pattern of undermining our significance as image bearers of God. And so if you are in any amount of abusive relationship, that is a relationship that undermines your significance as an image bearer of God. Some of you grew up in homes where you were regularly called stupid or an idiot or any other number of things. And that is what has formed this false image of who you actually are inside of your soul. 
And so we need to be very mindful of people that consistently undermine our significance as image bearers of God. And so you might need to make a difficult decision about boundaries or even the ending of a relationship if it is constantly poisonous to your own ability to function as a child of God. So really pursue affirming relationships, people who will love you and encourage you and help you and, 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 and reaffirm for you over and over again who you actually are as a child of God. And then finally, be like David. Let's really work to be conduits for God's kindness. Con, be a conduit for God's kindness. Notice that God used a person in Mephibosheth's healing. He didn't just show up out of nowhere. The Holy Spirit didn't just fly by and like sprinkle him with some Holy Ghost dust. He used a person. And and notice that David was intentional about that. I think it's very significant. Which verse is it in? Back in verse three, he says, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? We know enough about David that he wasn't just all the time a super nice guy. Read the Psalms. Got a little little worked up sometimes. Killed a few people, doesn't have a really great track record on a lot of fronts. But in this situation, he knew, I need to show this person how God loves him. I need to show this person that God is kind by being kind to this man. And we have the opportunity to do that to one another. And even as we do that in one another, our identity as children of God continues to solidify inside of our own hearts and our own minds. So just to come back to where we started, we experience significance when we embrace our identity as children of God. And so a huge part of embracing our true identity demands that we reject the very things that we wrongly allow to identify us. And so to that end, I want to close inviting you to close your eyes just for a second. Okay, so if you've got some stuff that's distracting to you, just put it away for a moment. And let's just take a second to consider in closing what it is that the Holy Spirit wants us to hear about our identity. So get comfortable where you are, close your eyes. And I want you to hear the very Spirit of God speaking these words over your soul. You are not your wounds. You are not your success. You are not your failures. You are not your responsibilities, nor your roles. You are not what other people think about you. And you are not what others have spoken over you. You are not your mistakes. You are not your trauma. You are not the sins of others against you. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are embraced. You are enjoyed, you are empowered, redeemed, you are an adopted child of God. 
May we learn to embrace this true identity and find the significance for which our souls long. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help in this. Because the truth is, Lord, our, our own perception and view of ourselves is deformed because of the wounds that we have experienced through the words and the actions of others. And some of us have further deformed our own view of ourselves by doing things that have reinforced this false identity regarding who we are. And so, Lord, I thank you that if we learn anything from reading the example of Jesus' life and ministry, it's that, Jesus, you are a healer. And so we invite you to do a healing work in this area of our longing, specifically significance. Lord, I pray that you would begin or continue the process of helping us to embrace our true identity as your sons and daughters. Help us to use Paul words to take off the old way and to embrace the new. Your word says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Lord, I pray that we would embrace this new identity. And Lord, if there is anyone here who is not a follower of Jesus, has not acknowledged, admitted, and owned the reality of their own sin against you and against others, and embraced the invitation of Jesus to come to him by faith, Holy Spirit, would you awaken hearts to that this morning? Lord, help us to see and to feel the weight of our sin so that we can, with great gratitude, embrace the finished work of Christ in our place that purchased our access to be your sons and daughters. Lord, we acknowledge that that is held out to each of us. I pray that you would help us to embrace your invitation to come to you to find healing and to experience ourselves as significant in your eyes. God, would you do that work? We know that you can, we know that you want to, so we ask that you would. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.